Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Everybody, welcome your saltwater guide, Captain Dave Hansen, with another phenomenal guest today on our podcast. We got the great Casey Shedd joining us today with some phenomenal old-time stories and new-time stories and all about the history of AFCO and how it all got together and how it all got started. But before we do that, today is Deccan Sports Friday. We always talk about Deccan Sports on Friday. We'll show you a really cool video in a little while. We'll show you that unbelievable kill bag that we show on the back of Justin's boat all the time. You guys won't want to miss that. It's a great video. And then uh, I just want to thank everybody for all the views. Absolutely incredible the other night, Sunday night. Elliot and I were just talking about it. We're just blown away. We got 149,000 views so far on that live video with Amir K. And it, none of it's possible without all you watching. So thank you all very, very much for that. And we're going to keep pumping out all the great videos we pump out every week. We got all kinds of cool new stuff coming up. So keep watching. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and the like button over here on YouTube. Those of you watching on Facebook, just hit the like button. That's all we really need over there. And if you enjoy all this content and you enjoy all the stuff that we're doing, make sure that you throw some stars at us or some tips. That way we know that you're liking it. Marley is right over here on the side of me. He'll be running around like I do every day. He has some mangoes he's eating right now, right in front of me, and he'll be a part of the show. So keep an eye on Marley. And gang, let's bring in the man, Casey Shed. And I'm sorry to introduce you like that, but I am honored that you're on my show, Casey. So thank you very, very much. Stoked to be here, Dave. Hey, thank you so much, man. Your family has been in this industry just as long as my family. So it's an honor to have you on here. And we got a lot of cool history to talk about. I don't, there's a lot of our fans and a lot of people watching that don't really know the Shed family uh, history and how it all came to be and about SeaWorld and then AFCO and then conservation. We have so, I, I guarantee we don't have enough time and this hour is going to fly by. So without any more, let's get into, Casey, when did the first time grandpa took you fishing? Oh boy. You know, like so many, um, you know, like so many, probably of your listeners, I, I, I just am so lucky to have the mentors in my life that I had my granddad, Milt, and my father, Bill. Um, and so, you know, I, I remember early, early days, you know, uh, uh, you know, halibut and sea bass trips on his boat. And then that later turned into some uh, sea bass collection trips. And I'd love to talk to you at some point here about the, the, the white sea bass program we have running in California that a lot of your listeners probably know about. Um, and then, you know, we would take uh, a friend of ours, um, uh, Tom Flager, we would take the uh, uh, Player Supreme down to Guadalupe and uh, tag great whites every summer, which was awfully fun pulling on albacore when they were around and, um, and then bring them, uh, um, uh, tag, uh, bringing great whites to the boat and putting satellite tags in them some of the early days of that. And so those are probably some of my earliest memories fishing with, with uh, granddad and dad there. And then there you go. That's you, there's right? Him. Yeah. There's me as a little guy, maybe, you know, a little later into those trips and there's, there's my granddad Milt. And Milt, what a, 
what an unbelievable human being. He did so much for the industry that a lot of our listeners and a lot of people watching don't really understand Milt. So why don't we talk about Milt for a little bit? I, we have so much cool stuff to talk about, but Milt was very instrumental in my childhood, very instrumental in the, the uh, design and uh, put together of a place that we all go and look at animals all the time and learned a lot about sea life down there at SeaWorld. People don't understand that. That was your grandfather's baby right there. But let's get into a little bit about Milt and how he got started. He's a, he had the passion like myself, my father, like your dad, the fishing bug. And then he saw the conservation part. And talk a little bit about SeaWorld. Yeah, cool. Yeah, he, you know, he had that bug from the time he was a little kid in Santa Monica going down to the uh, the pier down there and just, you know, catching bait fish to sell to the the neighbors. Um, ended up working as a, uh, just kind of, you know, helping on boats. Um, went away to the war and came back, still liked to fish and was uh, a, a stockbroker by trade. And he and some buddies were looking to, you know, kind of tie in his passion for fishing with um, with the business side of things. And so they were going to open an, uh, I think a restaurant down in mission Bay. And then that quickly spiraled in into what is, uh, now, now SeaWorld down there in, in San Diego. Uh, but that was all initially driven by his passion for, uh, for fishing. That's actually a cool story there. That was all pre SeaWorld. There's, you see five Marlin on the, um, on the old, on the old car there. That was one of the first times, uh, Marlin were, were caught locally with live bait. So, uh, you know, back in the day, a lot, I guess the deal was a lot of guys were, uh, trolling, uh, dead flying fish. Um, and, uh, he had, he had looked in the bellies and seen that he didn't really see any flying fish in their stomachs. And so he ended up, um, you know, uh, I think landing five fish that day when the fleet caught 10 and pretty quickly, uh, word got out that, you know, uh, uh, trolling live bait was, was the way to do it. So, but it, so anyways, that, that passion for fishing, uh, led ultimately to the creation of sea world, which was r really um, for him was his way of bringing what he loved was the ocean was bringing that to others. And so giving the access and exposure for the beautiful creatures in the sea uh, to the public. Well, yeah, your, your father was telling me when I interviewed him a few years back that the very beginning, your father was so into some of the cool animals that he would collect down at a, uh, down in Cabo, your your grandfather was one of the very first people that ever really fit sport fish down here where I live in Cabo San Lucas. And there's so much cool stuff behind that. But your grandfather was trying to figure out how he could bring these beautiful fish that they were catching down here back so that people could actually see them and learn about them. And that's what I thought was really, really cool about what he did was to bring it to the masses so we could all learn about it. Yeah, that was, he was just fascinated by the sea, honestly. He was just fat and just wanted to learn, just was always curious, uh, which is why so many of us fish, you know, we're, we're out there to explore and to uh, learn about the, the the wonders of the ocean. And so there, there was the boat, the sea world that he had built uh, to collect actually species, big old bait takes there um, in the back and would bring those up from, uh, from collection trips. But it really was driven on his end by just a passion to introduce the ocean to others. And that ultimately led into, um, you know, us getting involved in AFCO and um, a bunch of other great opportunities we've had in our lives. So, yeah, well, your grandfather was 
cutting edge. I mean, collecting fish species back in those days, that was unheard of. No one, we, we were into catching them and taking fish and going and eating them, but no one ever thought of, Hey, we should take these and put them in an aquarium so everyone can enjoy them. And that was one of the things I thought was so interesting when I talked to your father was, yeah, they thought it was a good idea. First, you know, you jumped so far ahead to mission, but the first thing that they were going to do is put it down there in Long Beach at the Harbor. They wanted to put that aquarium there with the fish in it. And then they started looking at what was going on in Long Beach Harbor and they're all, well, this isn't going to work. And then they got that piece of land down there in Mission Bay. And the way your dad described it to me is the city of San Diego basically gave them that land to do what they were going to do because they thought it was such a great idea. Yeah, there was there was the the city of San Diego had seen the um, gosh, what was it, Marine Land up north up in LA? Yeah. Yes, they had seen Marine Land and they were wanting to bring something down there, so they actually put out a, a bid. Uh, my my grandfather and his group, um, George Malay and some others, um, were one of the 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 folks that were bidding on it, and there was a few others as well trying to do it, and they were then the ones that ended up winning the bid, and then Milt's role was to go collect the funds, um, and then ultimately was the chairman of the board there for a number of years and. Uh, you know, I think what my dad probably would have mentioned is his real influence and his real impact on that organization was that, you know, he saw the need for uh, uh, for the research side of things and to give back. And so actually the year before SeaWorld was opened, uh, the the nonprofit entity was uh, was, was open before that. It initially was called, uh, it's now called the Hub SeaWorld Research Institute. It had another name prior. And that was his real legacy in my mind is of founding that organization, which you know, he kind of saw that, hey, well, there's going to be an expectation that um, that we're going to need to study these animals. We're going to need to learn from them. And at the time, you know, it was the reason it was such a maverick move is, you know, the, his board was saying, you know, we don't even have the money to get this park open. What are you doing trying to create this this nonprofit entity to, to research them? And as you know, um, and it was basically he walked into that boardroom one against 20 and was able to talk everyone into to doing that. And so that's still um you know, an organization that we support, uh, Hubs Research Institute down there in, in San Diego that is does an awful lot of good, including the white sea bass program, still uh, runs the broodstock and helps with all of the, um, uh, kind of helps run the, 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 the structure of the sea bass hatchery that we have in California. And it is such a great thing, that sea bass hatchery. And we'll get deep into that in a little bit. But back to this Hubs thing, gang. If you go down there, you can actually schedule a tour to go see this facility. It's still going full speed. When we were down there, what, three months ago or four months ago when we came up for for your dad's Lifetime Conservation Award, that was right there at the Hubs Research yep. Center, which was a pretty spectacular deal to be there. And I was telling all my all my guys that were there that bought tickets to have dinner with us and watch your father get that award. I'm like, you guys got to utilize this and take advantage of this so you can see what's going on because it's all working together to enhance the ocean and enhance what we're doing. And what a lot of people don't understand Casey is that enhancement stamp that you get on your fishing license that goes to that center that goes to hubs. That's what it's all about. That's why that money's collected gang. So we're self funding our own research center so that we can have fish to catch in the future. Isn't that, that's what it is, right? Yeah. The, so it, 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 it gets called the ocean rehab resources enhancement hatchery um, program, the ORHAP program. But if you, your, your saltwater enhancement stamp you buy on your, I think it's now $7. Uh, 
there's about $1.7 million of funding that, that goes to support that program annually. And that's all angler driven. I mean, it's entirely, uh, it's entirely angler driven in terms of both the money, the volunteer hours. You know, I think we, um, you know, there's, um, you know, folks like Jock Albright, Charlie Albright have been involved in the very early days of collecting the broodstock and still are thousands of volunteer hours from folks working at the pens. Um, and I think they've released more than 2 million white sea bass back into the wild. And it's been a real reason for, you know, that we've seen such an explosion over the last, you know, 30 years in our sea bass fishery. And, but that's, that's, it's, it's a lot of people involved in that. And the, and the honest answer is who's really involved in it is fishermen. That is entirely a fisherman driven um, effort funded hours, energy. And so now they're looking at how they can expand that program into uh, possibly halibut, some other species, but it's been a real, real success story for California anglers. It's absolutely insane gang. And when we, you see all the posters and all the things asking you to please turn in your heads of your sea bass, there's a, a direct correlation with the hatchery and the head because they are fed what is it tetracycline or what is it that glows in i'm sorry i can't remember it glows in the dark so when they hit it with a black light they can see if it's a hatchery fish or not yeah so they've actually what what happens is there's some neat videos of it i'm sure online but they they when they're real small they put a little the size of a um like a splinter a tiny little magnetic tag in the head of the fish and then when, when you, when you turn your sea bass heads in and you can drop them off in um, like Hogan's or at some of the freezers, there you go. When you turn your sea bass heads in, they hit it with a wand to decide that if the hatch was, the fish was originally from the hatchery or not. Now there's, there's, um, you know, we're trying to take that a step further and um, to do some genetic studies because we're, we're not certain that all of the heads that are returned, that all of those tags, either they're getting demagnetized or the fish push them out. And so they've done some early studies also on genetics and they found that a much larger percentage of the fish um, than, than that shows through the actual tags are really are really originally hatchery fish. And so I think eventually there's going to be a fin clipping process for people to participate in, which is a little easier than turning in a head. But there's still lots of good reasons to turn in the head. Um, if we can find the tags in them, we know, you know, both where it was released and some other information about the the origins of that fish. Yeah, it's an incredible thing. I, I maybe when I was down there seeing Don and talking to him 25 years ago or whenever, when I went for that tour, maybe that's when that was going on, but that sliver thing, I know what you're talking about. And I couldn't remember. Yeah, it's a tiny, just a tiny little magnetic tag that gets inserted into the head. And so what we're talking about gang is the actual, like you do in lakes and streams where they stock them with trout. What we're trying to accomplish here, and it's been going on for a very long time is we're trying to stock, the white sea bass back into the ocean, which is a very sought after fish. It drives the economy in Southern California. This fish is an amazing fish. They, they nicknamed it the gray ghost because they're hard to find and hard to, once you find them though, they're pretty easy to catch, but it's all about finding them. But this fish has been an integral part of fishing in Southern California for a very, very long time. It's one of the most sought after fish besides the swordfish that people are always trying to get this white sea bass. So when they started this white sea bass hatchery and Casey, how long ago is this, did they start this? Oh boy. Um, 30 years, 30, 40 years ago, probably. Yeah. Quite um, a while ago. If what, you guys what, remember what, what happened really Dave was, 
initially the 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 set the gillnets had kind of wiped out our sea bass locally, and so step one in the process was um, getting the the gillnets off our coast, and uh, that happened through legislation in in um, maybe ninety, um, and once that happened then the pressure was off them. And so then we were able to come in, anglers were able to come in with the hatchery program to then go replenish that stock. And then you were talking a little bit about Jock and uh, Charlie. Those guys are pretty darn good at what they do. And they go out and get this brood stock gang and they put it in on their boat and they'll bring it over to uh, Catalina. Then they got guys that will collect the eggs and the eggs go down to, why don't you talk a little bit about that? You know, way more about it than I do. I don't want to sound like a potato head. Yeah. So the, the, there was an original boots, broodstock collection trip and I was fortunate to be on some of those as a kid. Um, but you want to continue to replenish the broods, the broodstock, right? You want to make sure that your genetics are fresh and you're bringing in new, um, males and females. And so, um, and, and jock and, and, has really driven a lot of that. Um, also Dave Elm who works at AFCO goes on a number of those trips and they collect the brood stock and then put them in holding pens in Catalina until the water's the right temperature, take them back to the facilities there in San Diego, and then use those brood stock to produce the fry, the eggs and the fry. And then they grow them out to maybe six inches until they go to the, one of the hold, the holding pens uh, that there's about six of them, grow them a little bigger and then finally release them into the wild. And you guys can be a part of all this. They're constantly looking for volunteers. It's it's a it it takes the whole village. It doesn't just take one or two people. Your father, very very proud, very very big um, activist in this whole thing, has been very very integral in this whole grow out thing. And we take little pieces of real estate and in a lot of harbors and that get donated and because everyone understands how important this is. So when you see those grow out pens in Dana point, or excuse not the grow out pens, the holding pens in Dana point or in Marina del Rey or in Newport beach, understand it takes a lot of people to run that. And mo- everybody's volunteering to do this because they know how important it is to, to restock these fish and to think that we could possibly do this with halibut and other fish. That's why it's important to get those heads back so we can have science and research to tell people when we're looking for funding to run this stuff. Right. Yeah, that's totally right. Um, you know, I'd say that then, and you pulled up a CCA logo there and that's the right one. The best, if you're looking to get involved, CCA has been now real instrumental in helping to support that program. So if you're looking to get involved in the hatchery in some way or in the, the CBAS program, reach out to CCA, reach out to Wayne or, or find the contacts there on the website. And that, that that's the right initial leeway or, right initial entry port and to get get involved there oh absolutely wayne tireless that guy just never stops working it's incredible yeah 100 besides the sea bass thing he's got so many other things but this is a huge huge thing gang and it's very very important and it makes us as fishermen look like we're really taking care of the resource so when people say hey you guys just take and take no hold on a second now take a look at our we got a stamp that goes on our fishing license and that automatically goes to helping research development and restocking of the white sea bass. So we're constantly as sport fishermen, we're giving back, but there is nobody on the planet that gives back more than the shed family, starting with your commitment, AFCO, the 10% of all profits go back to conservation of the ocean. You guys, act, your family, 
every member of it, you guys put your money where your mouth is and you guys give back. Like there is no other company in America that gives back to the fishing industry like AFCO. So I know we jumped right out of the conservation, the sea bass thing into AFCO, but it's pretty important. When I got to tour AFCO with your father, he was so proud of his aluminum butt fishing rod butts and his swivel tips and his roller guides. But then boy, when you and you and you and uh, your brother and sister got involved, boy, you guys took it to a whole different level. Now you got every kind of clothing you could imagine over there. Yeah. You know, it's, um, um, it, it, the, the, the apparel side of the business in the last, you know, 20 years is we, we still manufacture our butts and our guides here in, in the shop. And you would have seen that. Um, and that's an awfully important part of, of what we do and the, the, the gaffs as well. Um, and you know, the apparel side though, is this let us reach so many more folks. You know, there's only so many people that, um, need a roller guide or a uni, butt, but the apparel lets us speak to really, really all anglers that, that are out there. And, yeah. you know, the cool part about all this is it's all driven by, you know, professional captains and guides, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, the, from the angles of the initial rod butts, you know, Peter Wright was very involved in all of that, the taper tip of the gaff. And today, you know, we're just constantly speaking and working with, um, the, the best of the best, um, to make sure that we're collecting their, uh, their input and their feedback to, to build the right product. Cause you know, I, I, Reality is between the kids and the work, I, I, I'm not certainly not spending near enough time on the water to be able to pick up on exactly everything we should build. But there guy, there's guys out there, Dave, like yourself and many of the guests that you've had on this podcast that know. And the, the cool thing about fishermen is they have this unique, um, you know, they're, they're, they're mavericks a bit. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of independent thinkers. Uh, a lot of them are very mechanically inclined and they're always tinkering. And so the ideas we get back from folks of things that, you know, someone shows up, hey, I've built this item or why don't you do this? The, the, the input from, um, from our, our team of anglers is, is really, it's frankly really impressive. And the stuff they come up with is a heck of a lot better than the engineers and the rest of the, uh, rest of the guys are able to do oftentimes because it's, there's just something you can't replace with time on the water. You just, you, you can't fix that. You can't replace the, the out, countless hours. No, that's for sure. And you got a great team behind you. But hold on one second, Elliot. Let's show everybody. I want you guys to see this. I made sure that we're not stepping on any toes over at AFCO. I didn't see any bags to hold your fish in over there. So I'm going to show this commercial that I have. Deckhand Sports sponsors the shows on Friday. So check out this really spectacular bag that Deckhand Sports made. What I thought was really unique about that bag, Casey, is the tie downs. He has tie downs all over the bag because, as you know, we're on a different boat all the time. You get, yep. you don't really have a way to tie the bags down. And the design, the way it looks like, 
the angle on the sides. It all works together. Dave did a ton of research. And then those ribs that are inside the bag that hold the bag open and also keep your fish up out of that water down there in the bottom of the bag. Plus, these bags are 100% guaranteed to not leak at all. You can throw these in the back of your Mercedes Benz and there's not going to be any water leakage. It's it's an amazing product. I love those ribs, the way it holds the bag open. I just really, he went way beyond the call of duty and designed it the AFCO way, for lack of a better word. They went every, they talked to everybody, they got it and it's a pretty neat bag. So check that out, gang. Go to, go to deckhandsports.com and you can see all the cool products they have over there. And it'll work perfect for those fish after Robbie hits them with the Ikejimi method and then drop them into those bags ready for your nice dinner when you get home. And so I'll actually, I'll, I'll get, I've never actually used their bag, but we, we did make a kale bag. Okay. Um, and, and we, um, we recalled it because we, we got some in stores and we got some to our friends. Uh, and in the testing process, the, we couldn't get the straps to hold up. Um, and so, you know, really a, a credit to them because it looks like an awfully successful bag. It looks like it works well. Um, you know, I, it's not, not an easy thing to make right. Um, and you know, something that, that there's, listen, we're a small privately held business. So we're not in, we're not in this to, to rule the world or to, to ship product that's junk. And so if we ever make the, the off chance, we make something that doesn't work, you know, um, we're going to take it off the shelves. And we did that with our kill bags and, um, you know, credit to these guys for getting it right. Cause it, lo it looks like a phenomenal bag. It's an incredible bag. And what I've heard from so many people is the zero leak. There's no leak because oh, guys go yep. fishing and they come back and they throw all their fish in their car and they take off. And then those other bags, and I'm not mentioning any names because that's not what we do here, but those other bags seem to want to leak in your car. Once that stuff leaks in your car, baby, it's you're done. You are done. You can't, there's yep. nothing, there's no shampoo in the world that's going to get that fish stench out of there. So it's cool that it's got all the cool tie downs. It just, they just went first class, just like AFCO does. They, yeah, awesome. they, they didn't mess up. So back to what we were talking, how I talked about Robbie. Robbie Gant was on the show. Robbie Gant has been in this industry for a very long time and he comes up with some phenomenal things. And I know he's been very instrumental in what's going on over there. And Matt Florentino, I mean, his father, <laughs> you're not going to find much people with more time on the water than Benny. And then Matt got to grow up in it. So those guys are touching the water every day. They're seeing what's going on. You, and the rest of the guys you have over there, people are really putting it all together and putting you guys out some phenomenal. <laughs> products and i had the opportunity to use those bibs and the jacket and captain dave doesn't wear shoes everyone knows it. it's part of my deal i do not wear shoes matt gave me those boots i put them on it was incredible yeah you know the co co couple of neat stories there so um uh benny actually keeps his belt here at afco um uh, he's just the nicest guy isn't he just the most wonderful human ever and oh so, gosh, yes. He always will take time, stop and talk to everybody. He's just the coolest dude. And so Benny, there he is there. He's there, there he is on our homepage. So Benny keeps the um Benny keeps his boat here at AFCO. And so we're we're basically regularly dropping products off with him that he takes out and fishes in. And those boots for one of them. I got a pair here. This has been um kind of what you hinted at is the the secret sauce of this. And one of the things that Benny and Matt and others cued us into was the uh the insole. And so the insole is a um uh, it's a more cushioned, more supportive insole that will form to your foot. So one key with this boot is 
the first time you put it on, it's going to be a little tight and that's okay. That's intentional. You know, you, you don't want your feet to be curled, but you want the boot to be kind of snug because what's going to happen, both this uh, material here and the insole, they're going to form to your foot. And Dave, that's probably what you saw is that it ends up being, I, I, I'm certain it's the most comfortable deck boot on the market, um, you know, and, and one that's going to last. And that, that's been a real successful item for us is the, those boots. Well, yeah, in my 49 years of working on boats and being out there and everything else, the reason I don't wear shoes and I don't because there were no boots that were comfortable. And like I was telling you before we went live, I wore those boots and I haven't worn shoes in 30 years. I put those boots on right before we started fishing and I stood on my feet and you can watch the live show. I stood on my feet for five and a half hours and not one time did I think about my feet. I never because if I'll put on a pair of shoes Casey and I'm like looking at my wife going oh my my feet are dying I can't do this much I can't walk I didn't feel that way I took the boots off and and I was like wow it does feels like I have nothing on when I had them on when I took them off it it's an incredible product and I'm not just saying yeah, that. I love to hear it. yeah no that 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 and you also had those bibs on um you know we've gotten into you know, we could maybe get into the legacy of the apparel product, but we, we, we're now making a pair of PU slicker bibs, which have, um, you know, for guys locally that have, you know, when you're washing down the boat, we, we make you know a lot of high end three layer suits, two layer suits, but we've never had is that straight PVC kind of more commercial style bib. And, you know, with those boots and, the, and, and those bibs, it's been a real functional item for folks. And what I liked about them, they're lightweight. So you don't even feel like you're wearing foul weather gear and you're just feeling like you're wearing a shirt and a pair of pants. It was very, very comfortable the whole night to have that stuff on. And I never wore it before. I was very impressed. Yeah, like click on that. Um, let's scroll down one. That Seafair bib, I think is the one that we sent to Dave there. Yep. There it is. Yeah. It's been, it's a, a new item for us as well. And it's, it's also been a real, real, real successful product for us. Gang, you'll be blown away when you put it on. You don't even feel it. It's super lightweight, but it's super thick because you saw how we fish. I don't fish daintily. I'm fishing hardcore. I'm running around, throwing hoop nets, grabbing lobsters. The whole thing just all worked so well together. It was just incredible. And I was just blown away by the boots. I can't say it enough. I can't. I'll just keep going back to that because my feet are such a huge issue to put anything on and those boots were insane. They worked so good. I, I feel like I'm excited to go in March at the PCS show that night before the show opens, we're going and I'm going to be wearing those boots again. And I don't even feel bad about it. Yeah. Love it. So Elliot's got some cool old pictures of how AFCO started that pair of shorts that he showed there towing the boat with them. Talk about that for a minute. Cause that's kind of a bitch and old picture. Yeah, see if we can find it up there. Okay, so there's a uh, – I'm pretty sure that's Stotesbury up there on the bow with the mustache and then Dave Elm um, with the crew cut. So that's the original pair of fishing shorts, the AFCO original fishing short made in 1989. And the the story behind those is it's a very durable nylon fabric. And that, you know, we were trying to show that the, basically the durability there, the 27 bar tax and the rest of it. Dad had, um, to pick the fabric, dad and my, and my grandpa had just gotten back from a tuna trip. So dad took three different swatches, cleaned, cleaned the, the tuna on top of each of them, put them on the roof of the building for four days, and then brought them home. And immediately, as soon as he stepped in the door, it was like that. 
that my mom screamed at him, what the hell, you know, what do you have in here? Get that out of here. Cause he had brought him home to wash them. And the fabric that, uh, uh, that washed the blood out the best and the guts out the best is the fabric we still use today in that short. And it's, uh, you know, on the West coast, it's, it's, uh, probably a bit of an older guy short kind of weirdly in the, in the Southeast, it's the item. It's the like fashion short for, you know, kids that don't even fish. Dave, if you turn to the side there, you've almost got the mullet going. Give yourself a pair of those pit vipers, grow your mullet out a little bit, and put yourself in some M1s. You'd fit right in the south. Perfect. All right. I'm on my way. And so that 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 item, that item led us really into um, a whole range of technical products and in, in shorts. Um, I've probably got a pair in here somewhere. You know, here's kind of the newer, here's a more modern version that you know guys on the West Coast would wear. We call it the deckhand short. It's a durable nylon, just like the MO1, but it's got some stretch to it. Cool thing about it is the the waistband's rad in that it's a it's an elastic stretch waistband on the inside, um, but it's still flat faced the outside. So this would be the deckhand short is sort of the the modern update to the original MO1 fishing short. But that old photo we've talked about forever about recreating that, and we probably should just to kind of an old versus new. Yeah, get a nice uh afco boat uh, maybe benny florentino's boat get it being towed around that might yeah, work i, I think that that's, I, think, I, I think we sure. should get that done that would be pretty cool to see that would be pretty funny so what you're trying to show everybody is they're so sturdy and they work so good you could tow a boat with them because that rope gang if you're looking those ropes or lines or whatever you want to call them they're not going through the shorts that One's tied to one leg, one's tied to the other leg, and they're towing the boat with that if you can't comprehend what's really going on here. And they're just showing you how strong they are. And that's kind of something that's important in this industry because we put our clothes through a big test here fishing all the time. And like you said, you have a lot of professional captains and professional fishermen you wearing your clothes because why? Because they work so well for what we're doing. I, I can't be a bigger advocate of those bibs, the overalls and the shorts. And I had that, I think it's fleece or something like that. The, the, the uh, sweater I had on underneath there and it has like a hoodie on it and it has. Oh yeah. The, the Reaper. Yeah. It has that turtleneck. So uh -huh. what's happened to me in the past, Casey is when I'm out there hoop netting in the middle of the night and we're traveling, that wind starts to blow down through the, the hood down to your back. Well, that Reaper, that thing stopped that wind instantly. I, I was very impressed with the turtleneck part of it that's holding around my neck. That was pretty rad. Yeah, no, we're so, the, the that fleece category for us. You know, a lot of a lot of staying warm too on the water is about getting the right layers. You know, so you want to have the right base layer. You want to have a right mid layer, whether it's a Reaper sweatshirt or some other fleece item we make, and then the rain shell. You know, that's either the the um, question there about the ladies line which we can get into here in a sec but either it's a you know pu outer like what you were wearing or just a barricade proper rain jacket and there's a whole woman's line as well if you if you click up there on the top there's a um you know whole range that reaper a bunch of shorts even a pair of bibs you know so yeah we definitely have the the, the ladies covered as well on the technical fishing apparel side yeah, that's what I was telling you before we went live. Kelly Girl's super excited about it because that's the missing link with most companies that we've been working with or involved with is they really don't have anything for Kelly Girl. And she's such a huge part of your saltwater guide and everybody knows her. She caught the biggest lobster ever caught in California. So now to be a part of the family here, 
you guys, she's going to be wearing your stuff very proudly and she's going to be seen by a lot of people. It's going to be rad. She's super excited to be part of the family. So thank you again, Matt and Casey for allowing Kelly girl and I in on the family. Yeah. And the women's line. I mean, you just keep scrolling, Elliot. It goes on and on and on. Kelly's having a hard time figuring out exactly what she wants to wear, which is a good problem. So, Dave, how many how many days are you on the water, and how many days are you doing this? What's I your do this look like? I do this five days a week, Monday through Friday. We do this live podcast Monday through Friday. We've been doing it for three years, just a little over three years. And so then I go fishing in the mornings before. Or when I come up to Southern California, we take a break from the podcast. I'll jump on some people's boats and go fishing with them. And then we do a lot. When we go on vacation, we go fishing Lopez Mateos or we go fish. I'm going up to Alaska with Larry Hansen. I do a lot of fishing on my days off. But as far as doing it for a living every single day, I don't do that anymore. Now it's social media and the podcast and introducing people to people like yourself that they know, but they don't know. So we're getting to tell the stories. We're getting some of the biggest names in the industry to come on our podcast and talk. And like you said, you were very intrigued listening to Lasley tell his story. You've known Steve your whole life. Everyone talks about Steve Lasley, but no one really knew the real Steve Lasley. Well, you know, you know, Steve's reputation of a savant and a genius and, um, um, but, but, you know, to hear his, his, his backstory of how he got into it and the hours put in, it was a really interesting listen for me. Um, and even who says, you know, fun hearing about, uh, Bob Hoos's background and, you know, just, a, a, a lot of the guests to hear, um, you know, but, but particularly the guys that are, that are the full-time professional captains and guides, uh, to hear their upbringing and how they got into it and the passion. It's a, it's a, it, it, yeah, you, you learn a lot just if you just sit quietly and listen, there's a lot to learn from those guys. And what I saw, Casey, was there's a lot of people out there doing podcasts and there's a lot of people trying to talk to these people, but it's so much easier for me to talk to all the all the people in the internet because we did it at the highest level we could do it at, just like they did. So I I think the better the best part about this is that I get to ask the questions that they are dying to tell you the answers to, but most people don't even know what questions to ask. And I'm not trying to pretend like I'm the superstar of interviews, but I just Grew up in the industry my whole life and your family getting you on here and talking about all the things that happened to get you to where you are today. That's what it's all about for people. They want to know. They just don't want it. Yeah. Casey shed AFCO his family's AFCO. Well, no, there's way more. There's way more to the story. So that's why I really enjoy these. And we do, like I said, we do it five days a week. There is Nobody else out there doing a live podcast Monday through Friday, at least in America, there isn't. I, I kind of have that market sewed up and we bring in guests every day. If you're if you're uh, not doing something one day, Casey, and you go, hey, I just want to jump on the show again with Dave. I love that because it helps me out tremendously because I do it all Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I've been doing it by myself. Me and my wife do Thursdays together. But it's cool to bring in people to help me because I got I'm running out of things to say. <laughs> yeah. And you have do you have a what's your do you have your what's your core fishing memory? What's your earliest memory? Was it with your dad or what was that for you? Well, Michael Folks is doing that history to sport fishing and yeah. he has a great interview that him and I did in his studio there in Laguna. And when I was three years old, 
I remember it like it was yesterday. My mom had me sitting on the counter at our house in San Clemente. And she said, we're going fishing with your dad today. And we, he was running double half day off the end of the San Clemente Pier back in 1963, 64. And I believe it was 64 when I went. And uh, my mom was putting my shoes on and we jumped in the station wagon. And at the time, my dad's office was on the end of the San Clemente Pier. So we were only people, there was only a couple people that were allowed to drive their car on the pier. And we were one of them. And my mom drove us down there in the station wagon. We went to the end of the pier. We got out of the car stood on the end of the pier. My dad pulled the sum fun, the, the sum fun that everyone sees today, pulled it up to the pier. And back then you could see him in the wheelhouse from standing on the pier. You'd look right in at him. And then I don't want to start crying, but then hmm. it was like, there he is. That's your dad. And I looked and there he was. And then I went fishing with him and I'll never forget that day. And that's when I knew from that point forward, I wanted to be a captain. Yeah. it's awesome. The, the, so his, his office was on the end of Sacramento pier. Yeah. The, we, we, my father started working on the San Clemente pier in 1947 and, uh, he ended up buying the sport fishing landing in 1956, 57 part-time owner. And then, uh, they built the sum fun and, and Carl's or excuse me, in Huntington beach, right in front of the power plant in 1960 one or no 19 yeah 61 they built the sum fun in 61 completed it in 62 and my dad was that was his the queen of the fleet 65 foot all steel sport fishing boat and then in 64 they built the clemeni at the same place right in front of the huntington beach power plant that big flat spot in front of the plant that's where they built both of those boats they're both steel hold boats and then my dad launched it in Newport took it down to the pier and the boat sat in front of the San Clemente pier on mooring cans back then. So at one time there was nine boats parked off the end of the San Clemente pier, all on mooring cans. Frank Lepresti, I, I don't know if you've heard of him or not, but he uh, started going as a pinhead with my father when he was a little boy off the end of the San Clemente pier. And my dad used to let him steer the some fun back to the dock. And that's when Frank decided he wanted to be a captain. So, I, you know, I live in Sacramento now. I didn't know any of that history. That's really cool to hear. We grew up on that pier. That pier was yeah. it. On the end of the pier, there was um, two buildings. There was the galley restaurant. And on the side of the galley was Bob and Bren Hart's tackle store where they rented the fishing poles for my dad. And then hanging out, overhanging off of the, if you're looking out the pier on the left-hand side in the corner there, there was a big building that hung out over the water and that was my dad's office. That's where they sold their tickets. That's where the captains kind of hung out in the morning and we would climb down the ladder on the side of the pier and jump in a little skiff and go out to the boats on the mooring cans and get them lit up and get them started and then come in and pick up our passengers on the end of the pier. That's so cool. It was a w phenomenal way to grow up. I'll tell you, I'm very, very blessed to grow up Hanson. It was pretty cool. It was a neat way to grow up. I, I, um, I surf at T street about two days a week. So I look at that pier, you know, every, basically, you know, basically on Monday and Thursdays, I'm looking right at where you grew up. That's pretty, that's pretty neat to hear. And if you're standing at the base, you know, where you go down the, the stairs and go underneath the railroad tracks, come back up on the yep. right hand side there, where it's just nothing. Now, all that was apartments, low line apartments and little tackle store and a little convenience store. And then, 
that giant parking lot. That's where all the fishermen parked in. They, we were so busy back in those days. The, the boats were just packed all the time. The parking lot was packed. And we had a, my dad, when he first started, I'm sorry, we're getting into my history. But when my dad first started in 1930, what was it, 39 or 40, he started carting fish off the end of the San Clemente Pier with his wagon. The kids would come from, from uh, Las Palmas School. And they yep. would all ride their bikes down to the pier in the afternoon and they would meet the fishing boats when they would come in and the, the passengers would put their gunny sacks in the children's wagons and then they would wheel them down the pier for you. And you'd get, my dad would say two bits, which is a quarter nowadays. And you'd get that to bring the people's fish down to the parking lot for them. And then eventually my dad bought a little, a little Cushman, with a little trailer on the back and that's how they brought the fish down. But it was all the kids. That's what got my dad. And my dad didn't care about fishing. He didn't know anything about fishing. That's not what he was there for. He was there for the two bits every afternoon. Yeah. And then a couple of the captains used to see him all the time and go, Hey, you want to come out on the boat, scrub the boat. We'll give you a hamburger and a soda and you can fish. He was like, what? And uh, he went and he did it. And then he was hooked and then he was in. He just didn't want to do nothing else but work on the boats off the pier. And then in 71, they built Dana. Well, they started building Dana Point Harbor in 69 and they completed it in 71. But my dad used to take me when I was a little boy up on the hill where the little gazebo is in Dana Point. Yep. And we would stand up there and look down and he would explain to me that they're building a harbor. Now, remember, Casey, I was a little boy, grew up on the pier. I didn't know harbor. Didn't mean anything to me. And we watched them dump all the rocks to build the two break walls at Dana Point. Yep. And then that island in the middle, those were all giant rocks. Like if you go to Dana Point proper and look, those were all giant rocks. And they they blew them all up. And they took the rubble and they made that island in the middle of the harbor. And they drained. I don't know how long it was empty, but they drained all the water out to put in all the electrical in there. Huh. So when they drained all the water out, there was lobsters and abalone everywhere in there and you could just go grab them it was pretty you went down there you got to see it all i was there I, awesome. I, I grew i grew up in uh 71 i was 11 years or nine years old so yeah i remember it it was pretty spectacular way to grow up yeah it's incredible san clemente's not it you know we don't it's you don't have the you know that it seems like the 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 bays the 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 dock fishing for the kids has replaced the pier deal you know, like if you don't really see kids running down to the pier, like, you know, my kids you know, take them down to beach fish or down to the, um, you know, not off the pier like it used to be. But there's so many folks in Southern California where that was a part of their their core memories. And if you go down the pier, Casey, the next time you're down there, just go for a walk down the San Clemente Pier. If you get down towards the end on the left hand side, you're going to see a big picnic bench, concrete picnic bench. And it's it says in in dedication to Donald K. Hansen. That's really neat. Pretty spectacular. And then Dana Point Harbor, you know, they named that after my father, Don, Donald K. Hanson Memorial Way, which is pretty spectacular. But yeah, just, just like your dad, he was on a mission to make sure that they kept fishing open. I think that's something we can fi finish up here on the show is talking about how important it. Your father and my father both got the uh, Lifetime Conservation Award from CCA. And that was a big day for 
your dad. And that was a big day for my dad because they want to make sure that we get to still go fishing. I mean, I think right now we got to make sure that we keep fishing open. So your kids and your kids, kids can have the kind of memories that you and I had, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And it's, you know, that's still an ongoing deal. Um, maybe for, it's all kind of confusing. So maybe I'll, Dave spend you know, two minutes giving the history of that part of the fishing access piece, if you don't mind. Um, you know, it started in, um, you know, a lot of people are aware of the, the MPAs that were set up, the MPA network, 16% of our coastline set up, many of them about nine and a half percent that are just straight no fishing zones at all. Um, and then a number of years ago, this bill came out called AB 3030 which was likely to expand that in a lot more. And it was all tied into this big international effort, 30 by 30, you know, um, 30% of the ocean protected by 2030. And the idea, the, the idea is fine on the face of it. You know, there's, there, it's, um, it could be a positive thing. It's just all about how it's interpreted. But in California, um, a lot of that interpretation was going to be shutting down that fishery. You know, that their, their way of con conserving the ocean was just let's set it aside, do no take zones, no anything, no interaction zones. And, you know, that's just not really the way to manage a fishery in, in the U.S. We have the best fisheries management policy um, that exists anywhere in the globe. It's, it's the envy. It's the envy of the world. And, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's the way to manage fisheries are, you know, bag limits and um, seasonal closures if necessary. And if you look at so anyways, that AB 3030 bill was killed, but they've brought back Newsom through an executive order, brought back the 30 by 30 process. And, you know, uh, thanks to the CCA, it's a chance that it still all works out in the end for fishermen. You know, uh, um, if you if you look at all of the protections we have in place today, both the federal, you know, monuments that are there, the prior closures, you know, we well, we well cover, in our opinion, well cover that 30 percent of protection. Um, and so right now that process is, I think, on the OPC's desk. It's, uh, it's on the, the, the desk of folks in California sorting through all of that. Um, but, you know, our, the CCA's hope is that, you know, the ocean still stays open to, to recreational fishermen, and we think it should. And But really it's about supporting the CCA, making sure that your voice is heard through them so they can represent our interests. But, yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's an awfully important thing that folks speak up and ensure that they're able to uh, work with the CCA so that, that the policy that happens is, is sound policy. Right. With a little bit of science behind it would kind of help tremendously because just going in, like you said, and just closing big swaths of the ocean without any type of science at all is pretty, pretty wild way to go about it. There's so many people, Dave, that they don't, they don't get to experience the ocean. They don't get to harvest fish. They don't get to nurse a fish back to health after releasing it. They don't understand it. You know, they, the, the one thing that's kind of happened in California is, you know, the, the, the anglers are sort of the original stewards of our fisheries, right? Folks like your dad and yourself and some of your, li your listeners and uh, my dad and my grandfather. And, and, you know, these are folks that, that because of their passion and, and myself, we care, care deeply about ensuring that the resources is, is properly managed. And the approach of just, well, let's shut it down and look at it from a distance. And wouldn't that be pretty to just take a big percentage of the oceans? And no, it wouldn't be because the getting kids on the water, letting them, you know, pull on fish, letting them interact with sea life. That, that's that's the way we learn. That's the, that's the way that we get outside and, and connect with nature. And the answer is not just shutting it all down for the sake of shutting it down. You're right that there certainly needs to be sound science behind all of it. 
and allowing for folks to interact with our resource. And so that's, you know, a big part of what, what, um, you know, we spend our voice and time doing is, is ensuring that at least from our perspective, that can happen, that we can still have access that, you know, I've got now three kids and there's nothing more than I want than to be able to, you know, um, catch, you know, Dorado with them when they're around or sea bass or calicos and making sure that they still have access to that. And you can envision a world where a hundred years from now that, that would not be open. Um, and so it certainly is important that we protect that. Right. Yeah. One of the things I talk about a lot on this show, Casey, is the United States of America is the number one consumer of seafood in the world. No one consumes more seafood than the United States of America. They say all the time, practice sustainable fishing. But when you're going to co- to uh, one of the box stores and buying your seafood, you're not you're not a uh, you're not practicing sustainable fishing because we're buying this foreign caught fish because we can't af- we can't afford to buy our own fish. Our fish goes. 90% of our fishing, you know this better than anybody, goes to China, goes to Japan, goes to the foreign countries because they know our quality of fish is caught sustainable. It's caught in a better way. The, the, the fish itself is taken care of better than any other country in the world. But we can't, we don't buy our own seafood, but we want to shut down our, our we want to shut down, not only do we want to shut down recreational fishermen we want to shut down our own commercial fishermen which is kind of silly because we're more than willing to buy it from unsustainable countries which i don't understand it doesn't make any sense to me tommy gomes and i talk about it he's a regular guest on here i don't understand it casey it doesn't make sense to me i'm sorry to bring that up yeah no so much of that's imported and then the stuff that's imported dave so much of that is farm raised Right. And 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 farm and it's unmarked. And who really, you know, if you look at the they've done so many genetic studies of it, fish are, aren't often what they say they are. I think, you know, the, the best way to do is to pick up rod and reel and go catch your own darn fish. Right. And then, you know, exactly where it's coming from. You know how it was harvested. You know, it was bled correctly. You know, it was processed correctly. Uh, the next best thing to do is to, you know, ask questions about where this came from and buying fish that were caught, um, you know, locally here in the U.S. And you, you could pretty well guarantee that if you're buying something caught here locally, that it was done the right way. And the, all the store-bought stuff, it's just not, you know, in many cases, there's just no way of knowing. And there's just, it's a real gray area and it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a problem. Right. And it's kind of crazy that on one side they're saying sustainable and then they're walking into the box. I don't want to mention, I do it too much. I mentioned the names of those stores too much, but they, they walk into the box store and then they buy that stuff. That you have no, it's got more frequent flyer miles than you or I do. We don't have no idea where that fish came from, gang. There's a reason why our fish is the most sought after fish in the ocean because we catch it sustainable, like Casey was talking about. So I just wanted you to all understand what's going on out here. And we're really to be at the end of the day, Casey and his children are me and my grandchildren or me and my boys going out with the fishing pole and standing on the, on the side of a boat and catching a fish. We don't really have an adverse effect of the population of the fish in the ocean. Even Casey as good a fisherman as you are. We don't. Well, I'm certainly, I can guarantee you that I am doing no, I I am doing no damage and it's not because I'm a good. (laughs) Yes. But, 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 you know, if you really look at it, the, the, the North American model of conservation says that, you know, really fishermen are, are a net, po- recreational fishermen are a net positive. 
not always the case, right? There's guys that aren't following the rules. There's guys that are poaching. There's guys that are doing things the wrong way. And it's important that we speak up against that, honestly. But the average guy that's out there fishing with his buddies or with his kids, after you tally up the fact that we're paying the license fees, excise tax, we pay on motorboat fuel, you know, we're funding that process. We're funding the conservation. We're funding, funding the agencies. Um, you know, so, you know, pay, pay your license fees, you know, you know, understand that you are paying an excise tax and motorboat fuel and the rest of it, but it's going back to supporting the, the management of fisheries. And, um, you know, the average angler, especially in California with the ocean, uh, the ocean enhancement stamp, you know, you're doing a lot of good, um, follow the rules and, um, and, you know, you're, you're doing an awful lot of good for the resource. Yes, absolutely. And we want to keep fishing open so we can keep going fishing with our friends, families, and children. It's super important so that guys in 20 years from now can be telling the story that you and I are telling about how our dads and our grandpas took us fishing when we were little kids. I can't imagine living in a world where that can't happen. That's so scary. So please, if you didn't get anything from this show, get be involved with CCA. CCA is our only voice at the table. It is it. We don't have another voice at the table, gang. And they go to all these hearings and they listen to all the stuff that I personally, I can't listen to because I don't have a filter and most fishermen don't. We're going to stand up and say something dumb and look stupid in front of all those people. But you got Wayne, who's got more patience than anybody. He goes and he listens and then he brings up his points and He's able to keep stuff going for us and keep us headed in the right direction. Just like your father. Oh my gosh. We can't, we never even talked about your dad. We could talk about him for five hours and all that he does to make sure that we get to go fishing all the time. Your dad gives back like nobody's business. Tireless effort on his part. Honestly, the, the, you know, four or 500 hours he dedicates every year to this stuff. Um, And again, that's because the legacy his father left on him and the legacy he's now left on our company of just the value of getting involved and the value of giving back. Pretty neat deal there. So my, my granddad was inducted into the IGFA Fishing Hall of Fame um, a number of years ago. And, and again, for um, you know a lot of reasons. And then dad also was recently, last year we flew out to, um, uh, they have it at, at Bass Pro, the, the Wild, Wild of Wonder Life or Wonder, whatever it's called, the Big Bass Pro Museum there. And he was inducted as well. The first father and son to be separately inducted. Um, and in dad's case, uh, you know, he likes to fish, but he wasn't inducted into the Fishing Hall of Fame because of the fisherman he was. He was inducted for the hours and the effort on the resource side, for the efforts with gill nets, the hatcheries, all the time he's put into things. Um, but he's, he's, you know, been such a such a helpful mentor to me, both on the business side, both on the fishing side, and uh, just really blessed to have him in my life. And still still involved here today at AFCO. You know, he's 70. We celebrated his 72nd birthday, but still shows up on Monday. And you know, keeps me and my brother in line and involved in setting the direction and tone for the company. Yeah, no, he's, he's, he's special human. Oh, absolutely. Just give back, give back. Like I said, a a while ago on the show, the shed family is the epitome of give back. You guys give back, you guys walk the walk and talk the talk. And it's all from your father and your grandfather and the way that they conducted themselves in this world. And you're nobody understood more than uh, your father of how important it is to make sure that we get to keep this legacy of fishing with the fishing pole alive in America. Yeah, there's an old, there was an old photo. That was my granddad there and my dad there tugging on the end of that. There he is. There's the big old eared kid. That's my, that's, there's Bill. There's my dad down there. <laughs> that's a neat one. You know, I have a neat story, Dave. You, you mentioned the, um, 
you know, your, your first memories of fishing. I have a, a cool one on, you know, I've really enjoyed letting my kids pull on, you know, seeing my, my, my little ones, there's dad again, my, my little ones get exposed to it. But my granddad's last day fishing ever was he was at the end of his life um, in a wheelchair. And we used to go, there's a Santa Ana country club there in Costa Mesa, East side Costa Mesa. We'd go there every Easter as a family to celebrate, uh, celebrate Easter. And we took him there towards, you know, he had cancer at this point and wasn't even able to talk. So we wheeled him there in his wheelchair and we'd go down, we'd take bass rods and go fish in those ponds. You know, you catch those, you know, big head, small bodied bass in those, in the stocks ponds or in the, not in the, um, in the, the, uh, the ponds at golf courses. But so we were going down there and we, we knew, we all knew it was his last day ever fishing. Um, cause it was the end of his life and the rest of it. And so dad and I would cast out a Sanko hook a fish and we'd hand it to him and he'd sit there with the rod in his hand, just sitting there, you know, not turning the handle, just sitting there. And we thought, is he hurt? Is he sick? Is there something going on? And, um, finally dad put it, dad and I put it together. We looked at him and said, you know, Hey, are you just wanting to, are you okay? Are you just wanting to fill the, the, are you just wanting to fill fish? And he just looked up and smiled. You know, and gave us his big, he knew, he knew it was a man who spent, you know, 3,500 days on the ocean who, who only thing he wanted to do was fish. And he knew this was the last time he was ever going to feel the, the, uh, you know, fish tug on his line is, you know, harvested, you know, hundreds of swordfish commercially. And it's done really everything in his life. He wanted to do fishing, but in his last moments, just wanted to feel the, this little bass, this little one and a half pound bass is tugging on his line and didn't want it to end, you know, refused to turn the handle. Cause he just wanted to just to feeling that little you know, that little tug that so many of us get so much benefit of, but it was, anyways, it was a really neat moment for me. Um, you know, now seeing that joy in my kids' faces to parallel that, to seeing that joy in his face and that very lot there, there's me and my little guy, but seeing yeah. that, um, seeing that, that, that passion he still had at the, at his very last breath, you know, of just feeling the kind of the tug on the end of his line was something I will never forget. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Cause it, you get connected with the fish then. And I can understand where your grandfather was coming from because that's probably how it's, we can only pray and hope that that's how it's going to end for us. It's yeah, an absolute, exactly that's right. how it started for me feeling that. And that's hopefully how it ends, but what a phenomenal story. Thank you for spending a little bit of, of your life with us here and helping us all understand a little bit more about growing up shed and what it was like being a part of the whole family and, the AFCO family, and I'm so happy to be a part of it now. And thank you very much, Casey, for your time today. Yeah, thank you. And Dave, last thing, I just, you know, um, excited to be working with you and, and and appreciate everything you do. You know, fishing is, it, it's not easy. There's so much to it, right? Um, even once you've bought all the tackle and, you know, hopefully you buy some bibs and shorts and the rest of it. But that aside, it's just a, it's a, it's a, there's so many elements to it. And you've done a really good job of breaking it down in a simple way, an accessible way, and uh, making folks not feel afraid or vulnerable to ask questions and do, you know, kind of walk through the basics. And I think that's a, you know, if we, if we talk about the future of fishing, making it accessible, making it attainable, and being patient with folks to say, well, here's how I've done this. Here's, you know, passing along that knowledge. That's an awfully important part of this puzzle. Um, so I just appreciate everything you're doing as well. well. Thank you very, very much. Everybody that watched the show today. Thank you very much. Do us a huge favor on the bottom there on the Facebook, right where it says comments on the left-hand side, you'll see that little arrow. That's how you can share this. 
share do us a huge favor and share this with all your friends and family members that are friends of yours on facebook because you don't know who this story is going to touch and who's going to get a benefit out of it and become part of cca because at the end of the day gang cca is the only the only voice we have at the table and i don't want to I don't want my kids to look back at this day and go, remember when dad and Casey were talking about fishing? We, My grandkids never got to fish because it's not allowed anymore. I don't want to live in that world, gang, and I don't want my kids living in that world. So please get involved with CCA. Thank you, Casey, very much, everybody. Elliot, thanks for producing another phenomenal show. That was epic, buddy. I love the way you threw all the great pictures up and they were relative to what we were talking about. You are a phenomenal producer. So thank you so much for that, Elliot. And everybody out there, we'll be back with you on Monday. We'll have another great show on Monday. I promise you we won't let you down. We're going to bring Amir K back in. He's going to talk with Justin. We're going to rehash that HoopNet trip and talk about all that great stuff we do and what we got coming up. So thank you, everybody, for a great day. Be safe out there. Turn off the news. Remember, this is the only place you get the truth. Bye.